Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Today I'm talking to Cheryl Janis of the Healthcare Interior Design Podcast. Her guests explore the heartwarming human stories of how design can provide hope and healing for patients and their families, growing hospitality-influenced design trends, consumer desires, new support care models, the latest technology, and the big ideas that are changing the way hospitals, senior living communities, and healthcare environments are designed. You're very welcome to the show, Cheryl. Uh, We're delighted to have a designer speaking with us today. And I wanted to start by asking why it is that you are interested in healthcare as a designer. Thank you for having me here, Moyes. It's, It's a pleasure, truly, and an honor. I have not that unusual of a story in that, well, I was in a lot of car accidents when I was younger and a lot of accidents as a child that landed me in various hospital and healthcare and medical office and dental office type settings. Mm. Not just here in the United States. I spent some time growing up in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico where my mother uh, was trained as an artist. So I had this experience, several experiences in various medical offices and they were not pleasant. So they were frightening as a child. They were sterile. They, they frightened me. So Uh, When I was 17 years old, I was in my big car accident, and I spent time in the hospital in the United States in Los Angeles with some wonderful, fabulous physicians to whom I'm very grateful for. And and these sort of experiences really informed my career. I was first an interior designer as a generalist, meaning I would design pretty much anything, a home, an office, a restaurant. And then I started to specialize about a decade into my career. I was I was working on healthcare spaces, and then I decided to specialize on them in them or on them because I was having an effect on more than just one person. Yeah. So that's my story of how I got into healthcare design. All right. So if I roll back a little bit, why design? I mean, with a history like that, you would think somebody would say, well, I'll go and do nursing or I'll go and do medicine or I'll go and do some healthcare related career, but you've chosen design. Why design? (laughs) Um, It just so happens that I'm also a, a, what, people call empaths who are have a sensitive nervous system and who are sensitive to other people's emotions. And there's about 20% of people in the United States, I don't know about Australia, who are considered highly sensitive people. That's sort of a technical scientific term for having a highly sensitive nervous system. So mm. I always found myself very interested in how the environment felt And so my first interest was an Eastern philosophy called feng shui, Mm. which is a Chinese philosophy of of how you arrange your environment according to how it feels. And then I started to look at design psychology, which is very similar. You know, how does the environment feel? How do we use it? And that's just where my interest, you know, drew me to. Okay. So you went and did design, then you, you said you designed spaces that weren't necessarily healthcare spaces, but then you did start to get interested and focus specifically on healthcare. Right. So when I was uh, designing homes, people often referred to me as the self-care interior designer because I was always concerned with or asking questions like, 
know, what's your stress like and how do you balance your work life and how do you restore yourself? And do you want to create a yoga room or a quiet room or a meditative area? And how can we do that? And so that just sort of naturally expanded into the private sector of medical offices and healthcare professionals, both in the allopathic sense and in the integrative complementary medicine you know, sense. So there was the alternative practitioners and the, you know, and the regular dentists and physicians who I helped. And I noticed that across the board, I started to see that uh, not only were staff and physicians, doctors, dentists, chiropractors, acupuncturists, didn't matter, were feeling better in the spaces. Their businesses were doing better because their patients were feeling better. There were, they were building a rapport, uh, relationships, because the space was designed in such a way as to care for their needs, their feelings. And so patients would then spread the word. And so what I was seeing was this incredible increase and in correlation between the design of the environment and the increase in referral business without having to go on Yelp or do anything on social media. It was simply designing your space in a certain way that to a lot of people seems common sense and other people don't have a clue, which right. is fine. Right. That created a situation in which their businesses were improving. Yeah. And that that just thrilled me. That just tickled me. Mm. I love that. Mm. I can understand why that would be. It must be very exciting to watch somebody's business grow because they are better responding to their customers, if you want to put it that way. Now, that's fair enough for the private sector, but in... In public healthcare, uh, you know, insured healthcare, where the funders have set up what essentially look like bus depots in order to service, <laughs> you know, lines of people, uh, in, in particularly in poor neighborhoods, right. can, can design help in that situation? Yes, and it does. And so I am, as you know, I host and produce another podcast called Healthcare Interior Design 2.0. Yeah. And on this podcast, I get to interview the brightest stars in the arena of public healthcare design. And so I've picked, I've had the opportunity to really pick their brain and it really does make a difference and hospital clients, at least in the United States, and I'm sure in other countries really care about the patient experience. Um, part of it is sort of informed by getting reimbursed by the government because the government now, uh, I don't know how many years ago, just started to see, I think it was in the early 2000s, they started to see, or maybe even earlier, started to see a correlation between, you know, the reduction of hospital-acquired infections and other things in the environment that could be done to reduce those, and also to create an atmosphere where patients were feeling very satisfied. And so, at least in the United States, the boomer population is now in retirement, and they have a lot of say about how their senior living facilities and hospitals are designed. And so they've been a strong voice, and the government has been listening, and hospitals are listening, and in turn, designers are, of course, listening. And of course, designers are in design, most of them, because they have a personal experience or journey like I just shared and there are these fabulous stories and so heartwarming. And so they they then are able to go in with their large team of contractors and developers and architects and engineers and planners 
and the clients of the hospital. And then they get together with this incredible vision and work through, you know, the budget issues and whatnot. And then they get to create these really beautiful, comforting, nurturing spaces where everything is taken into consideration, not just the patient experience, but the patient's family, you know, the caretakers, the clinical staff, the physicians, really everybody. Mm. So what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen made in the places that you have visited? I'm sure you've visited some monstrous uh, places where clearly it's not an environment where health is regarded as a priority. It's getting people through the door. Right, so right. What, what are the worst things you've seen? So, of course, I think about, and I laugh about this, and I've, I've written about this to my community, uh, the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles here in the United States. I don't know about Australia, but in the United States, they have a terrible reputation for having harsh lighting. And that means like those overhead, you know, tube you know, fluorescent lights that sometimes flicker and the seats are very hard and there's a lot of unhappy faces and long wait times and that kind of thing. So I've seen that. We've all seen that in, in our experiences at some point in our lives in the hospital setting, in, in, you know, anywhere in the world. And so the mistakes are to not have a, a really educated designer or an experienced designer who understands design psychology, understands how a person feels, how the brain works. And so some of the things I've seen done that are common mistakes are putting too many rectilinear shapes in a space. So you throw in a bunch of chairs next to each other, like like army cadets, you know, waiting for their sergeant. And there's no space and the lighting is harsh. And so there's been all kinds of studies on circadian rhythms and how it's important to create really, you know, shadows and and spotlights and different places that mimic natural light and that kind of thing. So the the absence of all that is is what are the biggest mistakes. And those are the, you know, lighting, furniture, mm-hmm. shapes. All right. So in terms of in terms of that then, I, I can imagine a hospital manager or a clinic manager saying, well, you know, we need these lights because people are sick here and we get uh, fluids being spilled on the ground, people vomiting, all kinds of <laughs> awful things like that. We need chairs that people can wipe down, which are which are easy to wipe down should somebody have an accident. Uh, we need we need, you know, we don't have funds to buy expensive furniture from expensive stores. What would you say to all of that? I would say it's 2019 and there are so many wonderful uh, vendors out there who have created products and modified products through research and talking to the clinical staff and learning about their needs and come up with, you know, beautiful, cleanable, durable, comfortable products that include different kinds of lighting, LEDs, warm LEDs, the way that you design lighting. There are certain architecture firms in the United States I know that have or that hire out, you know, lighting designers who are educated, well-educated in how lighting affects people and different kinds of people, especially people who have certain kinds of illnesses or diseases. Those can be exacerbated symptoms can be exacerbated right or amplified when the lighting is wrong Hmm. do you think people's attitude to the care that's provided is set by the atmosphere of the place they walk into 
Absolutely. We know we know from research and science that first impressions are lasting impressions. So I think the research says that we make up our minds about someone or something, a place or a person within, within the first 15 seconds right. of either entering a facility or meeting a person. And we're just ha- hardwired to do that. And so, of course, if we walk into a medical office, a private medical office, or even a public a hospital, and there's a hospitality table, meaning there's self-service water or tea or something that's really easy, you know, people will naturally feel grateful and they will naturally feel at ease. So guess what happens there then, then when they meet with either the receptionist or the doctor or the nurse or whoever, they, they just feel better. They feel well, they feel that's their first impression (laughs) and it's a good one. Right. So it sets the tone, doesn't it, for your visit to this particular place? Right, exactly. Okay. What would you say to people who say, well, we already got our building and it's set up the way it is and it's functioning perfectly fine. And yet you know that, you know, they've got a captive audience. In other words, we can have it like this. People still come because they have to come. They've got nowhere else to go. What would you say specifically to them? I don't know, because I think when people have their mindsets on certain things, they're difficult to change. Now, circumstances might change them, like dentists, for example. You could say in the old in, in the olden days or 30 years ago, dentists didn't have to do anything. You know, they could just set up an office and, you know, some walls on any corner in the country, at least here in the United States, probably anywhere, and then the people would come. Well, now there's just so many dentists. And they're everywhere. And so there's more competition. Yeah. And then, of course, you combine that with what the boomers and the millennials are asking for, which the millennials want, you know, savvy technology and they want beautiful artwork. And they have sort of different desires and needs uh, than the boomers. But you put those two populations together and you put, you know, and then you look at the dentist who comes out of dental school now with $300,000 in debt and they're going to want to do whatever they can. So they're going to soften. So... I'm not sure what to say about people who are just really strong in their opinions. I tend not to argue with those, but there are also, you know, really savvy and interesting uh, clinicians who've turned uh, architects. I'm going to be interviewing one uh, next month, Diana Anderson, who is calls her a doc attacked. And she, when she works with clients, I know that she really, ed- you know, sits down to educate them. And so maybe there's a decision maker in the hospital environment and they're just like, you know, they've got their arms crossed and they're like, no, 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 no. Well, you know, that sort of is the job of the designer or the architect to say, look, here's the evidence. This is what's happening. You know, they have all these new ways of showing people things like with new technology and, and AutoCAD and different ways of, of really helping people who may not be able to visualize the outcome, uh, visualize it better with these things. So I'm hopeful in that, or I'd like to think that that these people can be swayed a little bit. They can be open a little bit. They can't be completely blind to what's the changes around them, right? Well, they can't. And particularly if you're saying it's not about the color of your walls, this is about your business. This is about people who, who, who are going to get better quicker, who are going to be less demanding, who are going to feel 
able to disclose, as we said at the start of this interview, you know, their deepest, darkest secrets, because that's essentially what this place is about. This is not a place that looks like a DMV shop where you go to renew your driving license. This is where you come and talk about your depression and your anxiety and your bleeding from unmentionable organs and all this kind of thing. Right. Uh, you need to feel comfortable. Humans respond much better when they are treated in a particular way. As a designer, that's, I'm sure, is what you're, you're, you're trying to convey to them. Yes. When you talk about mental health facilities and behavioral health facilities, I think it's on a whole other level. I, I, I am going to interview someone on the podcast who is going to speak about behavioral health facilities and I interviewed someone, you know, last month on the podcast who talked about mental health facilities and told some stories that were really heartwarming and and concerning. And so there's a lot of focus now on mental health and that design and that uh, furniture doesn't have to be uh, uncomfortable and uh, unliftable or, or safe. It, it can also be comforting and helpful to patients and their families. And so I think uh, with the high and growing amount of mental illness in, in all you know areas of the spectrum from mild depression to schizophrenia and other, other issues, that is becoming more of an interesting topic and more important. And I'm so happy for that. Yes. And it's also about creating an environment where children can be comfortable because if you look at the age of people who use doctors the most, it's the very young and the very old, uh, right? And, and the very young in particular. So, how do you work with organizations that cater largely to children? I have worked with again. I have worked in the private sector, and so the public sector geniuses in the United States are working for the architecture firms that they're they're really specialized. So they do a tremendous amount of research. They do tremendous amount of research on the demographic, on the brain of the child, on the brain of the elderly person or older adult. And using the evidence, they then uh, will go to the client and design accordingly. And that is very important. From a private sector perspective, let's say you have there's a dentist who serves the older adult population and serves the millennial families and then serves also a pediatric, let's say they include all of them in one practice, one small practice, which I've helped and seen. Well, for the waiting room, for example, would have a, you know, a children's area and then the the parents who are generally millennials, you know, they they like to sit at these cafe tables, which you know, they can watch their children. And then the older adults who, you know, have back problems and, you know, have a hard time getting up and sitting up and down, they have another area that feels more like a five-star hotel with nice, very ergonomic chairs where they don't feel humiliated if they can't get up and down and they feel well, well cared for. So it's just an integration. And I I love that's why one thing I love about the United States is is there's there's a lot of integration of modalities. It's not just it's not just the ancient and the traditional. There's there's an openness and a willingness here. Yes. Is that do you think because a lot of healthcare is privatized? That they're more open? Yeah. Do you think money mm. drives this? Yeah, I mean, yes, it always does. I mean, I read a statistic today from someone. I'm doing I'm doing some research on uh, Rosalind Kama 
with Cama Inc. And uh, she's just phenomenal in the evidence. She's, she designs uh, healthcare spaces, she and her team. And she also is so big on the evidence and, and has so much research to back everything up. And she's such an innovator. And I read that hospital-acquired infections in the United States hospitals, they spent, hospitals spend between $5 billion and $30.5 billion a year on related incidents that are related or as a result of hospital-acquired infections. So that's a big, and so the government will reimburse, even in the private sector, I think, uh, I think they deduct 1% if you're, they, they sort of rank you as a hospital. And if you fall in this place of like, you've got, you've, you've got a bad record for hospital acquired infections, then they're going to not get as much reimbursement. So that's, that's a big motivator. So yes, I would have to say yes, money and budget is always a big motivator. But the, um, Center for Health Design, which was established, I mean, goes way back to the 70s, and they're out of Concord, California, and they're an international uh, nonprofit organization that is led by Deborah Levin. Now, they, they've set up all, you know, what's called the Pebble Project, which are, you know, they set up these hospitals, and then they try out all this evidence, and then over the years, they've documented that evidence. And what they have found is that which is really interesting. They have found that when hospitals actually care about the patient and they take these the evidence-based design aspects and they put them towards their design, they make their money back in like a year. I mean, it's it's this incredible, uh, great return on investment. So those are a few examples of how how money is a factor, but also is shown to create a kind of, to motivate them also in a very humanistic kind of a way to kind of combine those, to be able to combine those things. It's very compelling that this is not about just making people feel nice about being in a space. This is much more fundamental than that in the art of doctoring. This is about the hard outcomes, very, you know, reliable outcomes, improvements in infectious disease uh, in hospital-acquired infections, improvements in the rate at which people respond to medication and recover from depression, uh, take their treatment as prescribed, or indeed make changes in their lifestyle which are about their choices as opposed to something that they're, that's imposed on them or, or a lecture from somebody in uh, a room which has fluorescent lights in it. All right, I agree. Cheryl Janice, it's been an absolute honor speaking with you today. I very much look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for having me, Moyes. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>